Hello and welcome back to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andre, and you're listening to episode 35, which is, as promised, the second part of my conversation with Craig Nicholas. Now, in the first episode, which was episode 33, if you haven't listened to that, make sure to check that out first. But in that episode, we mostly touched on things you can't do much about uh, when it comes to getting stronger. Um, This one is something that is less tangible, but at the same time more malleable, if you wish. And that is mostly your mindset and your attitude. And... um, also the environment where you train. So uh, we talk about internal and external environment, what's going on in your head and then what's going on outside of your head and uh, in the gym where you train. So you will hear some very cool stories, you'll hear some very cool studies that have been done in this area. I think you'll find this whole topic fascinating because I sure did. So I hope you enjoy And without further ado, let's get into episode 35 with Greg Knuckles. So we mostly touched on factors that are kind of set in stone and can't really modify it, like uh, build and uh, force production capabilities of your muscles and stuff like that. Uh, Now I want to talk about the factors that we can change and... um, Let's talk about internal first, so talk about mental stuff. Now, for this, uh, there have been a couple of studies you reviewed on your uh, one of your, well, your web pages. <laughs> it was an older one. Uh, and these, quote, forestry studies, which have been just mind-blowing to me. Um, and it really shows you the power of belief. Um, could you, like, talk about these and your kind of your views, I guess, on... Uh, on this whole uh, topic because I'm sure that um, people put way too many limitations on themselves. I know I probably do that myself. Like I had for a long time this 100 kilo bench like seemed some sort of barrier and I just couldn't overcome it mentally. And the same with the squat like for a while like anything over 100 was just like a lot like <laughs> in my head. And um, I know it's it's going to be a long question but uh, I remember you had at one point uh, one of your few YouTube videos. Uh, you mentioned how at uh, at some point you went away from Travis's gym and you trained at a more commercial gym, I guess, and your lifts kind of stagnated because you got away from that environment and you weren't uh, used to seeing guys just lift monster weights uh, day in and day out. Yeah, so the the first part of that question, the the couple of studies that, that I've referenced before. Um, so one of them was, uh, it was conducted on the, the British national powerlifting team. Um, and this is actually one of my favorite studies of all time. So because like the human element of it is, is so choice. Um, so apparently back in the early two thousands, the British, like, national IPF affiliate powerlifting team uh, wanted to use steroids and get away with it. And so they hit up their coach and said, like, hey, coach, can you get us gear? And um, he, being uh, an ethical man, thought to himself, like, no, that's cheating. I'm not going to do that. But then him being a wily bastard said... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, but I can use this to study the placebo effect. So 
what he did is he had his lifters max, and then uh, two weeks later, he gave them uh, like saccharin tabs, like mm-hmm. sweeteners. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and told them that it was a fast-acting steroid, um, <laughs> and then had them max again. So first off, uh, the study was published in like 2001. So like the internet exists at this point. Uh, <laughs> people should be able to Google like what are the effects of steroids and see like, oh, it makes me stronger by helping me build muscle over a prolonged period of time. Not like I take a pill and it turns me into Superman. So like <laughs> it shouldn't have done anything. Um and then, yeah, so they, uh, they took the pills, they maxed again, and across squat, bench, and deadlift, which they were very highly trained at, like the average bench press in the study was like 190 kilos, average squat and deadlift were like 270-ish, something like that. Um, so like strong dudes, like v- clearly very well-trained. Um, they got an average of like four to 5% stronger across all three lifts, like automatically just because they took this pill that their coach told them was a fast acting steroid. And like four to 5% may not sound like much, but like, that's a, that's a big difference in like elite competitive lifting. Um, you know, we're talking putting, if, if someone totals like 1700 we're talking putting like 35 pounds in their total like automatically which very well could be a year's worth of progress if not more for a lifter at that level it's 85 pounds not 35 five percent oh yeah that was, that was <laughs> even 2%. better yeah, yeah so that's even bigger uh <laughs> so yeah huge increases automatically so then he kept giving giving them these pills. Uh, they trained for two weeks um, while taking these pills that they thought were steroids. Uh, it came back after two weeks, and he got like subjective feedback from them about how their training was going. And they were like, "Oh, best two weeks of training ever! Like, I'm lifting <laughs> weights I've never lifted before. Uh, like, I'm recovering faster. I'm doing more volume. Like, everything is awesome." Um, and so it seems like, you know, like not only were they stronger two weeks prior, like they reported during those intervening two weeks, best two weeks of training they'd ever had. Then he had the max again. He told half of them, yeah, you're still taking steroids. And he told the other half, psych, you've been taking a placebo pill this whole time. And so if these people are rational, they realize like, oh, wait, the these numbers I hit two weeks prior... I did that. It was all me. No steroids. These two awesome weeks of training I just had, that's all me. No steroids. Uh, but they regressed back to their initial numbers. Like the the 4 to 5% stronger that they got automatically, poof, it goes away. And then uh, the, the people who thought they were still on steroids uh, hit about the same numbers that they'd hit two weeks prior. Still 4 to 5% stronger over baseline. And a handful of them PR'd again. So, like, just due to the fact that those were already, like, elite, like, world-class level lifters, like, those results were huge. Mm. Um, Then the other study by Ariel et al. from 1974, uh, it was a training study. 
And what they did is they had, um, so he recruited a, a bunch of guys and told them, you're going to train for seven weeks. And uh, the ones of you that get the strongest over this seven week period, uh, I'm going to give you free steroids. So <laughs> one, like the training they were doing on the front end was incentivized. Like they had an incentive to train hard because they were going to get free gear out of it. Um, then after those initial seven weeks were up, uh, he, instead of picking, instead of actually picking the people who made the best progress, he took a sample of those people, um, who, who had just trained for seven weeks. Um, but it, it was like pretty much all of the initial sample. Like, I don't think he left that many people out. Um, had them train for another four weeks, giving them placebo pills and, uh, tested their max at, at baseline uh, after week seven and then after the four weeks that people thought they were on steroids. So uh, from week zero to the end of week seven, they put an average of 10 kilos on their squat, bench press, standing military press, and seated military press uh, all combined. So like not many gains. Um, and then over the next four weeks, they put an average of 45 kilos on those four lifts combined. Um, so they made like four times as much progress basically, uh, in, in barely more than half the time. So like rate of progress increased like sevenfold. Um, and again, like the only difference is they thought they were taking steroids. Um, so, so in terms of like how I would interpret that, I think I think it would be easy to like overinterpret it, right? So you can't necessarily anticipate that sevenfold increase in rate of progress over four weeks is going. You can't extrapolate that out twenty years to an entire training career. Clearly, um, and then also like when you're dealing with the placebo effect, like the placebo effect isn't like just a thing with a fixed magnitude. Like it varies based on like the perceived strength of the placebo. Um, and so like in an experimental setting like that, they could have people who could like deceive them and convince them that like, Hey, you're actually taking steroids, but like, you can't do that to yourself, you know? Exactly. Um, like, like I can't just go on Amazon and, and just like type in, steroid pills close my eyes click the first thing it's not steroids because they're selling it on amazon but like you know close my eyes click the first thing buy it not know what it is and like convince myself that it's steroids like like that's just not gonna work um and and it, it could very well be like corticosteroids and like make me weaker um, so like yeah like you're, you're probably not going to be able to replicate that same effect on yourself in the first place. Although it is possible that, uh, people who intend to use steroids are doing that. So some, some research that's looked at like the, the purity and potency of, uh, like, um, like underground steroid labs, like the stuff they sell, uh, something like, 15 to 20% of the products they sell is like uh, D-Ball or like Anavar or something like that is like mostly androstenedione, which 
which doesn't do anything unless someone has like clinically depressed testosterone levels. Um, so like there's probably some people out there who do think they're actually pinning steroids that are pinning a placebo and probably still <laughs> making good games off of it. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, just, it, under normal circumstances, it would be very difficult to induce that effect on yourself. Um, and I, I don't think like changing beliefs about yourself are going to have the same effect as like changing your belief about whether you're taking steroids or not. Uh, but I do think that that general principle is sound where um, if you're going into something like fully expecting to make good progress, uh, you're probably going to do better than if you go into something like skeptical about whether or not you're going to make good progress. I don't, I'm not going to profess to know exactly mechanistically how that occurs. Like it could, it could just be like a belief thing affecting effort. So, you know, if you go into something and your strong belief is that, you know, if I really apply myself to this, things are going to work out well, you're probably going to train harder and put more effort into it than if you go into it thinking like, eh, probably not going to get much out of this in the first place, but may as well give it a shot. Like, like, that's not as motivating. You probably just don't train as hard. So, like, I, I think that's probably or likely the main thing going on. Um, but, yeah, so I think that um, I, th I think that beliefs about oneself and one's potential do do impact the, the progress one will make. Um, I certainly think that, like, the total amount of progress one can expect to make across a training career. I think that's primarily just biologically constrained. And so you can't like believe yourself into being Ronnie Coleman. Um, but I think, I think it's more of like, I think it's more of like two ceilings. So you have like a, a biological genetic ceiling that you, you have literally no idea where that is. Like that, that is an unknowable quantity uh, and then you also have like a mental ceiling where you just have blocks and it's hard to progress past. And so like the key is to make sure whatever your mental ceiling is, like wherever that block is, is at or above your actual genetic ceiling. Um, just to make sure that that's not going to like artificially limit you. The drawback to that approach is you're probably going to wind up less satisfied with your training. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people like to convince themselves they have bad genetics because it's then if they don't make good progress, like it's not as psychologically painful. Like if you go into something with low expectations, failure doesn't hurt as much, you know? Um, so, you know, if, if no matter how strong you are, if you think how strong you should be is, you know, a hundred kilos stronger, at some point, you're not going to be able to keep getting 100 kilos stronger. And you wind up disappointed. And, like, that sucks. So, like, it, it's less um, psychologically coddling to go, about, to go about it that way. But it's probably going to set you up for better physical results in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I heard a cool story, like, a while back. I don't know who said it or where I heard it, but basically apparently some US lifters like went into Europe and you know how we Americans are with like kilos, like they have no idea what the pound is, what a kilo is, and <laughs> most people. And so basically they went into the gym and they were like, 20 kilos, what's that? And someone said to them, well, it's two pounds. 
Oh, okay. So 200 kilos is 400 pounds, right? Right, okay. And <laughs> basically one guy just loaded, I don't know, let's uh, hypothetically presume that his max was like uh, 400 pounds previously. And he was like, well, 200 kilos is 400 pounds. So, hey, let's try that. And he lifted 200 kilos. And he was like, okay, that was easy. Let's load up 220. That's, that's 440. <laughs> and I don't know where where the story ended or where he he, uh, he stopped or where he failed. But basically, like, he lifted, like, 60, 70 pounds more than he ever lifted. Because he just thought that, hey, uh, 400 pounds is, like, 200 kilos. Meanwhile, 400 pounds... Is just 180 or so, <laughs> so he was way off. But is this once again a cool story to illustrate uh, this point? I I actually did that to a buddy one time. Um, <laughs> so I I used to coach at a gym that uh, like primarily catered to weightlifters. Um, brought one of my powerlifting friends in. Uh, there were pound plates in the gym, but most of the plates were kilo plates, and he was like, he could not squat five plates, which in Europe would be 220. Uh, in the U.S., it's it's 495, which is 225. Um, like he he just could not squat that, um, and like he could do he could do 485. So he could do like uh, 202 for like three reps, like three or five reps. So, like, he was absolutely good for five plates. Like, there was no doubt in my mind. But, like, he just saw that fifth plate on the bar and he'd shit the bed. Um, and so, like, I told him the exact same thing. He's like, what's the pound to kilo conversion? I'm like, eh, kilo's about two pounds. He's like, isn't it, like, two point something? I'm like, yeah, it's, like, two point, like, oh, oh, four or something. Like, it's not enough to make a difference. He's like, okay, cool. Um, and so, like, we're working up. Um 200 is easy, 210 is easy, uh, 220 is easy, and that's like right at his old PR. Um, hits 240, it's a little bit of a grind, but it goes right up. And so that's like 529, um, which is like considerably more than he'd ever done. Um, then he tries 250, which he now thinks is 500, which is the weight he always shits the bed at. Uh, and, you know, what happens, happens. Like, he he looked he looked with two fifty the same way he would typically look with two twenty five if he was using pound plates, um, and he was like super frustrated. He's like failed at the same place again. This sucks, and uh, I was like, "Psych! You just did five twenty nine and barely failed five fifty one." And he was like, "Oh!" <laughs> he was like, and from from that day on, he never had a problem squatting five plates. Uh, but I, I feel like that's I feel like that's almost different though. Well, I don't know. I, I guess that is like somewhat similar to like the uh, acute steroid study in in the the British lifters. But that that's that's less of like I feel like at that point you have like a less valid baseline almost because in in that case like he had a specific mental block seeing like a particular number of plates on the bar, whereas like. If you're, you know, if your max is like 475, which isn't like any particular like pretty increment, uh, the difference might not be as dramatic. But yeah, like I, I, I've, I've used that approach. Oh, uh, that's how I got my wife to bench 135 the first time. 
Um, so she would always freak out whenever she would see like a 45 on each side of the bar. And so just like working up one time, um, I just used like a random assortment of like tens and fives. I was like, ah, I'm too lazy to grab the 25s. Like, don't worry about it. Um, and she ended up like hitting 135 and I told her, she was like, Oh really? And I'm like, yep. She's like, put a plate on. So we put a plate on, she got it. And then like 135 was good from then on out. Uh, so yeah, like I, 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 I see that. I, I don't know that that's the exact same thing though. I, I see it as more of like getting past a specific mental barrier. I, I guess it's similar though. Yeah. I think it just, um, conveys the same message that you shouldn't, like you said, you shouldn't limit what your capabilities are to what your perceived mental barriers are. And, um, in general, it's better to take the attitude that, uh, I have a good genetics and this is going to work and I'm going to make great gains than the opposite attitude. Cause it's just not really helpful. Correct. No, I, I very much agree with that. Okay, so let's touch on the importance of the influence and the dream train that. Because, you know, there is this old, uh, usually bodybuilders say that you can train anywhere. And I agree, you can train anywhere. You can train the same way anywhere. <laughs> so um, I know you had some experience with this. Like you were obviously, um, I guess, fortunate that you started properly lifting in a very serious gym um and i remember you telling stories that travis would just like come and squat your max weight from warm-up just to mess with you guys <laughs> something <Yep>. like that <laughs> so that must be fun and on the opposite side we have commercial gyms where like i said um anyone who like deadlifts over 140 is like oh you're strong like over 200 is like oh my goodness you're the hulk so um, how much do you think that has, uh, how much impact that has, and what can we do if we can just all go to a hardcore powerlifting gym and whatever train with the strongest people in the world? So I, I definitely think that makes a difference. One of the things I've noticed is like just the mindset people have when they have versus haven't trained with people who are very, very strong is just completely different. So, like, there there are individuals out there in the world who make statements such as, if you bench more than three plates, there's, like, a 99% chance you're on steroids. Which, like, to me, that just sounds crazy. Because unless you're, unless you're like, 60 kilos, if you're a competitive powerlifter, like, a three-plate bench is basically just the price of admission. I'm used to that being, like, a okay, now you can kind of do something type weight, not a holy shit, that person is strong type weight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to me, when I see someone benching more than five plates, I'm like, okay, that person's a pretty fucking good bencher. Um, <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's like that, that, and then when someone's benching like over 600, then I'm like, okay, maybe this is finally a cause for a little bit of skepticism. Uh, not that I don't think there are people who who haven't benched more than 600 raw or raw and drug free. Like I, I certainly do, but that that's that's kind of the number where it's like okay, like not too many people do this, um, and I think part of that is just like my my introduction to powerlifting was like I was like a 14 year old kid 
And everyone I was training with was uh, juiced to the gills and big. So, so Travis, he was like, I don't think it's a secret that he used to take steroids. I, I don't think I'm giving anything away there. Uh, but like, he competed at 100 kilos. He would walk around in the off season at like 110. And then everyone else in that training group was like 125 or bigger. Uh, except for this guy, Seth, who was like uh, about 80 kilos, but like just freakishly strong and explosive. Um, but like, you know, I, the, the first meet I did, I weighed in at 69 kilos. Like I was a little dude and all of these guys were at least 10, 15 years older than me, had been training for way longer, were way bigger and way stronger than I was. And so, you know, first, first like year and a half of training, like I was, I was hitting numbers already that were like national or world records for like my age and weight class but every time I would go to train I was so much weaker than anyone else in my vicinity that I never thought oh I'm strong it was like a oh I'm really weak and these people are very strong and so like since there's this big of a gap between me and them I clearly have a lot of room to improve um and like, I think that mindset did help a lot. Cause yeah, once Travis got a job in Chicago, that crew kind of broke up. Uh, and then I, I did hit a, a pretty hard wall for a while. Um, but then in terms of like a practical strategy that someone could use to potentially get past that, one of the things that did it for me um, is I made a YouTube playlist of, um, all of the like world records, uh, both uh, tested and untested in my weight class, the weight class below mine and the weight class above mine. Like, cause I wasn't quite sure what weight class I wanted to be in yet. So just kind of the range of weights I might be at. Uh, and then I also had a playlist of like old Ed Cohn lifts. Um, and like every morning, uh, every, every day before I would go to the gym and like every night before I would go to sleep, I would just watch through that playlist. So like I'm every single day seeing people who are about my size lift way more than I am. Um, and so like that just kind of like kept that in mind, like always top of mind that like, okay, like people my size can lift this amount of weight. Why shouldn't I? Um, and like until I did eventually end up getting quite strong, that very well could have been a completely irrational belief. Like, I, like I, I didn't know that I could get that strong until I actually did. But just, like, that was my self-talk. Like, I would see that, like, okay, at least this much is possible. So, like, that's what I'm aiming for. And so that, uh, that, that kind of, like, helped me break through that mental barrier and start making good progress again. Mm, very cool and i really like the uh these people do it why can't i do it uh attitude uh, do you know valentin tambozi yeah so he trains like a dust gym and he at one point like he was training or i don't know if he still trains with this other guy who is like enhanced and he was saying that hey uh pff, if he's pressing i don't know on this machine four plates per side why can't i press it 
and that's cool. Um, <laughs> it's awesome if you have a training partner that's way stronger than you. Because um, again, you can take the attitude that, hey, she's taking steroids and I will never be able to achieve it because he's taking steroids. Or you can use that as motivation. That, hey, he, if he can do it, I can do it too. You know, I, I actually like training with people on steroids because I like to have like kind of an underdog mentality. Because like, I don't have that much. Like, I clearly had a good draw for lifting. And just in most things in life, I haven't been an underdog. Like, I'm a white dude in America. Like, things are good for me. And so, like, there, there is kind of something I like about training with someone who's, like, also pretty gifted and on steroids and stronger than me. Because then it's like, you know, I go, I go into the gym every day thinking, like, okay, like, I'm at a disadvantage here. Like, they got something going for them that I don't have going for me. So, like, I better work extra hard and that'll help me catch up. And, again, that may not be, like, an entirely rational belief, but, like... I, I I feel like I feel like one of the problems I feel like one of the problems around this entire conversation and then also just kind of like the like quote unquote evidence based community in the first place is there's people aren't good at distinguishing between what might be rational and what might be useful because um, like when I write something on the website, I'm going to say like, you know, what we have the best evidence to support. Um, I, I have had some articles about mindset that, that you've referenced, but like, I'm just talking like pure performance and physiology. I'm saying like, okay, like here's what the data suggests. These are kind of the ranges of stuff that people can expect. Um, but then in terms of like my own personal self-talk, like it's completely different from that. Um, like I, from day one, I just like set my sights at the moon. Um, like I got into lifting pretty soon after Andy Bolton pulled the first uh, thousand pound deadlift. And like he did it equipped and on steroids. But I was like, huh, you know, why can't I do that? And it's, I think I've been training long enough that I, that I can be reasonably confident. I'm never going to pull a thousand. Um, but still like, that's like where I set my sights. I'm like, still to this day, uh, like I've been muddling around in the sevens for years now, but like, I still kind of like to pull nine and like the, the next jump is eight, but like, I'm not thinking eight, I'm thinking nine. Um, and like one of, uh, so like we had a PR board at the gym when I first started training and Travis's bench PR was 545. Um, and so like the most I've ever benched is 485. So like I should be thinking five, but I'm thinking 550. You know what I mean? Uh, so like, and like at this point, man, like I've been training 15 years. Like the rational part of my brain knows that like those may not be numbers that ever happen, but the the self-talk and like the goal setting, at least for me that I found to be the most effective is the, you know, set my goals way, way higher than where I currently am. So then, you know, when I go for 500 on bench, it's not going to get in my head because I'm not thinking about 500. I'm thinking about 50 pounds more than that, you know? So yeah, like, like th those are probably quite irrational beliefs, but they're very useful. Like rational facts aren't always the most 
like useful things to believe in order to accomplish a goal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of people do a good job uh, distinguishing between factfulness versus usefulness. <laughs> I was just thinking of that conversation between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. And did you listen to it? Uh, the first one. Yes. <laughs> so basically, the entire conversation, like one point five, two hours, however long it was, it was a talk about what's true, uh, objectively, and what's useful. And Sam was going on about what's true, and Jordan was talking about what's useful and what's helpful in life. <laughs> and that was the entire disagreement. Well, what wasn't wasn't that whole talk framed around what is true, though? But yeah, but in practice, like what Jordan was referencing was uh, a more accurate description of what's useful, because he the examples. Um, Basically, he was talking about what's keeping you alive and what's keeping alive the earth, whatever, the humanity in general. Um, and that's what he said that, for example, if something led to the extinction of life, then it's not true enough, something like that. I think he played pretty fast and loose with terminology in that discussion. But that's that, that's that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm just, uh, I just uh, got into my mind that that's a very good example of that sort of uh, distinction. Um, one of my aims with this podcast is to leave uh, people with actionable items and stuff that they can actually take and implement into their own trainings and lives. Because um, at this point, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of uh, um, time or use for just, you know, random things that I can't really implement. I mean, I like to know them or learn about random facts just for the sake of it, but I'm much more interested in things that are also beneficial and helpful and I can uh, do something with, so... I'm more of the persuasion that I just like to learn things for their own sake. Um, Because I I feel like... So I I feel like if if you focus purely on what appears to be immediately useful um you might like cut yourself off from ideas and breakthroughs down the road uh a a book i would really strongly recommend um to you and to all of the listeners it's a book called where good ideas come from by i believe stephen johnson is the author um one of the ideas in that book is the adjacent possible uh and and that's essentially the idea that um like new new knowledge is gained like one little bit at a time uh and generally not in big chunks and it usually just comes from like the boundaries of our current knowledge you you can often like if you know enough you can ask interesting questions whose answer becomes like new knowledge or like a small breakthrough that you can then add to the body of stuff people know that other people can then build on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so a lot of times, like, the ability to come up with a good new idea, you don't know what you need to know to get there. And the best approach just tends to be, like, knowing a lot of stuff. And a lot of that stuff may turn out to never be useful, but you don't know what bit of it will turn out to be useful until it does maybe months or years down the line. Um, and so like w- w- one of the criticisms I get a lot with my website is, uh, you know, like there's a lot of information here. Uh, a lot of it 
is useful to me in my training, but like there's a lot of like just background like pure science information that like, why do I need to know this? When am I ever gonna need to use this in the gym? Um, and if you're looking at it purely from a perspective of like, you know, what can I apply to my training tomorrow? Like th that is certainly like a fair and valid criticism. Um, but I see it more as like educating lifters for the long run where, you know, maybe like some little tidbit they picked up that wasn't useful at all when they read it helps them like make a realization about their training and something they should tweak, you know, two years down the line. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I certainly get, uh, especially like in a podcast format, because I, I think like relaying denser scientific information is probably better suited to writing. Um, but yeah, I, I so I, I'm not criticizing like the format of the podcast at all. Uh, but, but I did just kind of want to get that out there, that there is like absolutely a lot of value in just learning things, um, even if you have no idea what you're ever going to do with them. My only problem with this is, again, time. I mean, if we all had unlimited time, uh, believe me, I would like to learn so much. Like I would love to learn a ton of dances and I would start training like MMA, like seriously <laughs> and all that but uh, unfortunately we're kind of limited so one of one of the things i recommend to a lot of people is to read textbooks um because in terms of just like density of well-vetted generally true information um that you may have not come in contact with like the, the density of that in a textbook will probably be considerably higher than pretty much any other source and so if you, if you assume the typical textbook's like 500 pages long or something like that, um, if you just read 10 pages a day, you're knocking out a textbook every, you know, every like month and three-fifths-ish, or like month and two-thirds. Um, and so you can get through, oh, I should have said 600 pages. That would make the math easier. You get through like seven or eight textbooks a year, um, which like, you know, if, if you're talking like exercise science and nutrition, like you can do exercise physiology, you can do anatomy and physiology, you can do a basic biomechanics book, you can do a more in-depth biomechanics book, you can do sports nutrition, and then you could potentially get into like... Um, like sports psychology or something like that. And there's like six textbooks. Uh, you could probably get in one or two more throughout the course of a year. And like, if you read those, at that point, you're gonna have like a pretty good grasp on the field. Um, and like, obviously there will be a ton of details that are published in like individual studies that haven't made their way into textbooks yet that you, you would still be blind to. Um, but like, that's a tremendous amount of information to be able to get through in a year. Um, and then like, if you want to make sure it's cemented the next year, just go back and read those textbooks again. But like, you know, mostly picking up on like stuff that you were hazy on or missed and uh, like skimming through it at a slightly faster clip of maybe like 20 pages a day. And then like in two years, you've pretty much like cemented somewhere around an undergrad to graduate level uh, education for, for, for free. I was going to say for the price of the textbooks, but like, dang it, what's the site again? 
Oh, I know, Library Genesis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Library Genesis. Um, so you, you can find most textbooks you want on Library Genesis. Libgen. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, like there's clearly a limited amount of time in the day, but you can relatively efficiently pick up a ton of information. Oh yeah, I agree. I was referring to things outside of your field. Like obviously this would be related to my field, but you know, like you said, unrelated information. Like I don't know, you start reading about economics and history and uh, I don't know, geography or, <laughs> you know, music, something like that, which is like totally unrelated. That's uh, what I mean. Or doing activities that are, um, you know, outside of your competence that you, just for fun because they might help you. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I was more talking about like just learning information like within your field that may not be directly relevant to application. Let's uh, end it here because you have been more than generous with your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, I will make sure to link in the description all of your uh, resources. I will link to your website. I will link to Mass, which I am subscribed to, and uh, people should definitely check out. I have, I don't know, since two years ago, probably have a <laughs> abandoned reading uh, direct studies, mostly due to lack of time. I, I just read the controversial ones, <laughs> like the 45 set uh, per week uh, type of studies, just because people seem to uh, get to <laughs> to an over they get too emotional about it so I have, I have to check them out to see what's up but other than that I, I mostly just read mass and uh, uh, I follow people on social media and listen to stuff to keep updated so that's an ex uh, exceptional resource you put out there with the other guys well thanks man everything around that study that was such a clusterfuck <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway uh, well thanks again and uh I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. All right. So that was episode 35 of the Muscle Engineering Podcast with Greg Nagars. I hope you enjoyed it and you find it interesting and or helpful. Now, as usual, I will leave you guys with some of my uh, practical takeaways, of which there will be two today. The first one is uh, something that Greg mentioned, which is to not set limitations for yourself or if you do <laughs> make sure to set them high as fuck so if you think you can achieve a certain lift make that 100 pound higher so if you think you can achieve a 500 pound squat make that 600 because hey you might not hit 600 but but you might hit 550 and that's certainly better than if you would have shot for 500 and you would have hit 450 instead so uh, just as a general rule of thumb, aim for the stars, basically, it's what we are trying to say here. And the second part is the gym where you train at. So, if possible, don't train in a commercial gym. Now, I understand that money and time are two factors most people care about. But if you're serious about lifting, seek out the gym with the biggest people. Seek out the gym with the strongest people. And also a gym where it has plenty of equipment but also where you can train hard where they bang some hard music where you won't hear clubbing crap where the light doesn't look like the inside of a nightclub <laughs> 
all of those are pretty much factors that would already tell you that this gym is not for the serious lifters. Like, if your gym resembles a nightclub, there are people who take selfies in every corner and half of them doesn't train legs. You should probably get out of there if you want results and you're serious about your training. So, those would be my two top takeaways. And that was episode 35 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast. Thank you all for listening and I will catch you all in the next episode.